Good morning, saints. As you know, many of our uh, sisters are away at the women's retreat this weekend, and we wait for their safe return, Lord willing, this afternoon. That said, it's become customary here at Redeem South Bay that when the women or the men are away at a a retreat, we hold off from our typical or normal preaching series until we're all together again. And so this morning, we have the opportunity to enjoy a one-hit wonder, as I like to call it. This morning's teaching is going to be an exposition of the book of Job, an exposition of the book of Job. And you may know uh, that the writings comprise the last section of the Hebrew Bible, which is our Old Testament, and this section includes the following books, the book of Psalms, the book of Job, the book of Proverbs, Ruth, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, Esther, Daniel, and Ezra and Nehemiah as one book, and lastly, the book of Chronicles. And that's important for us to understand the book of, or, or the section that's called the writings, because the writings, rather than focusing on the major events of redemptive history, although there are a few exceptions, the writings focus on individuals and their life of faith or lack thereof. And so when we come to the writings, we are offered an incredible opportunity for us to glean from the lives of men and women, either to follow their examples of faithfulness or to be warned by their examples of faithlessness. And so that said, I invite you Turn to the book of Job if you're not already there. And we're going to begin this morning by reading the first two chapters of the book of Job. This really sets sets the stage for the remainder of the book. If we rightly understand what goes on in the first two chapters, then we're going to be greatly helped by analyzing the counsel of Job's friends and the musings of Job which takes place in chapters 3 through 37. And of course, that's going to give way to God's dealing with Job in chapters 38 through 42. So let us read Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. This is the word of God. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in 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 the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? 
that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep, and the servants consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all the, this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz, the Timonite, Bildad, the Shuhite, 
and Zophar, the Naamathite, they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. Let's pray. God in heaven, we come to you and ask that you would bless our time in the study of this precious book. We ask that by your spirit you would teach us, that you would teach us about ourselves, that you would teach us about suffering, that you would encourage us in how we are to respond when we are put in situations that cause suffering. Lead us and guide us and strengthen us by your word such that we might honor you more fully and know you more deeply and live for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing I want to do is I simply want to walk through the book of Job. And then after that, I want to offer four encouragements toward humility based on the book of Job. So let's walk through the book of Job together first. I'm going to share with you really the purpose of this book. What's the goal? What's the aim? What's the purpose of the book of Job? The whole aim of the book of Job is to bring its hearers or its readers to the point in which they realize that when the faithful experience what may seem like random suffering, his or her response should not be to demand answers from the Lord, but rather the, re- the appropriate response is to fear and trust the Lord simply because he is who he is. That's what the book of Job is after. In other words, when explicit suffering occurs in your life, then implicit trust in the Lord is to follow. And I can't underscore how important this is for us to grasp. How vital it is for our day-to-day life. Christian, when you experience suffering, we often ask the wrong questions, don't we? We often ask, why God? But the right question to ask God amid suffering is this. Will you help me to fear you and trust you, God? Will you help me to fear you and trust you, God? Though I don't understand the suffering, though I don't understand my circumstances, the first thing that I need is your help rather than figuring out the who, what, when, why, where, and how. For Scripture tells us all who desire to live a godly life will suffer. A simpler way to capture the purpose of this book is this. The response of the righteous to suffering must be worship of and submission to the Lord. And this purpose is really displayed in three steps, if you will, or three major sections in the book of Job. The outline of the book of Job is something like this. We could call chapters 1 and 2 the disasters of Job. The disasters of Job or the accusations and afflictions from Satan. 
Then the second major section is the debates of Job. We see this all the way from chapter 3 to, to chapter 37. The debates of Job, or as I like to call it, fighting with friends. And then lastly, we see the deliverance of Job. The deliverance of Job in chapter 38 all the way through the end of the book in chapter 42, or God's intimate dealing with Job. And so we have the disasters of Job, we have the debates of Job, and then the deliverance of Job. And one of the reasons why this book is so helpful and so vital for us is because it equals the balance with the book of Proverbs. Proverbs are not promises. Proverbs are not promises. Rather, Proverbs are generalities about the way that life typically goes. If the book of Proverbs offers us conventional wisdom, then we would say the book of Job provides unconventional wisdom. If the book of Proverbs tells us the basic rules of wisdom in this life, then the book of Job reminds us that there's always an exception to the rule. Because both the book of Proverbs and the book of Job fall under the category known as wisdom literature, many people fall into the temptation of reading Job in the same way that they read the book of Proverbs, especially when we get into the discourses between Job, his friends, and Yahweh. And I want to be clear up front that in the book of Job, there are some amazing statements made, some statements that are theologically beautiful and precise and accurate, but there are also some boneheaded statements made as well. What we want to be careful to do is when we read these beautiful, theologically accurately, or accurate, precise phrases and statements, we must acknowledge that they need to be rightly applied to Job's situation. Sometimes we'll say yes and amen to the things that we read in the book of Job, but the question is, are his friends rightly applying it to Job's situation? We have to be careful to read well. So let's look at some of the texts from the book of Job in order, in the order of the three-point outline that we've already looked at. First, the disasters of Job in chapters 1 and 2, which we've already read. Part of what really makes Job's experience so disastrous is the fact that the hardship occurs to such a righteous man. We, we empathize. We sympathize. We, we like Job up front in the book. And so when he goes through these challenges, we easily feel for him. If we saw Job as a wicked person, we'd say what? That's what you get, Job. That's right. But that's not how Job is presented. Job's righteousness is all over the place in these first two chapters. The narrator defines Job as blameless and upright in chapter 1, verse 1. Then the Lord himself identifies Job as blameless and upright in chapter 1, verse 8, and in chapter 2, verse 3. And blamelessness does not mean sinlessness when the subject is a man. Well, then, what does it mean? Blamelessness in this context conveys legal innocence. Legal innocence. He has a right standing before the Lord, not because he's sinless, but because he does what the Lord has required and he has a right relationship with fullness of heart before him. This speaks of both positional and practical implications. 
because Job's position is a right relationship with God, then what does he do? Then Job's practice is doing what the Lord requires with fullness of heart and joyful obedience. We see that in things such as the offering of sacrifices. And later what we'll see is that Job's blamelessness is the reason why Job is having a hard time understanding what's happening to him. He's lived a righteous life before the Lord. He's done what the Lord has required of him. And so therefore, he doesn't understand. As a matter of fact, it's Job's legal innocence that is the ground upon which he demands a hearing before the Lord. I've done what you've required. I've lived a righteous life. My heart is right before you. I do it with fullness of heart. So therefore, I should be able to march into heaven and have a hearing before the judge of all judges. Being blameless is similar to being above reproach. That means that there are no legitimate accusations of moral fault against Job that can actually stand, that can actually stick. He's a good guy, we might put it. The terms upright or just emphasize the high moral conduct of Job's life based on his relationship with God. Remember that Job feared God, chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 2, verse 3. Remember that Job continually turned away from evil, 1, 1, 1, 8, 2, 3 again. And notice that the Lord calls Job my servant. He says to Satan, have you considered my servant? Well, that's Job's righteousness. But we're also introduced to another character, and that character is Satan. Chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, we see that Satan appears before the Lord. And we're told that he is going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down upon it. And from Scripture, we might presume that he is seeking someone to devour. And so it's the Lord that presents Job first. He says, have you considered my servant Job? There's there's no one like him on the earth. He's blameless, he's upright, a man who fears God and turns away from evil. What in the world? That goes against everything within us. Why would God do this? Well, God's always doing more than we can fathom. And in this case, God will simultaneously disprove Satan through Job's outcomes, but also instruct Job by means of Satan's onslaughts. And this causes us to humble ourselves and to simply say the wisdom of God is absolutely unparalleled. We see that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. In verses 9 through 12, after the Lord, presents Satan, uh, the Lord presents Job to Satan, Satan pretty much says, well, yeah, of course he fears you because you've blessed him. Look at the possessions that he has. Look at the children that he has. It's his possessions and progeny. If you take those things away from Job, then certainly he'll curse you to your face. And then in the second attack, we say, okay, Satan says, the possessions and progeny, maybe not. But if you take from this man his physical well-being, 
then he will curse you to your face. Behind the scenes, there is a contest, if you will, between the Lord and Satan. And it's being played out in Job's suffering. Satan is permitted to bring attack after attack, yet the Lord preserves Job and his faith. Listen to Job's initial responses once again. After the first attack in chapter 1, verse 20, the text says that Job arose and he tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground. Not to merely weep, not to merely display that he's hurting and aching and suffering, not to show the great turmoil that he's in, but he falls on the ground before the Lord, and the text says, and worshiped. We can worship in our suffering. We can be tearful and still worship the Lord. And I assume that's exactly what's going on. And these are the words that he says. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. What a great perspective on life. Everything that we have is a gift from God, and we came into this world with nothing, and we'll go out of this world with nothing. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. But if there's one thing that we are to do, we are to bless the name of the Lord regardless. That's exactly what Job does. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we're told up front in this initial response, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He's not saying at this point, why God? He's not saying at this point, I deserve better than this, God. Oh, he'll get there. But initially, he does not. His second response, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, the nearest and dearest, his beloved wife has witnessed the first onslaught from Satan. She has witnessed Job's first initial response But now after Job is covered from head to toe with sore, she has a new perspective. Then his wife said to him, chapter 2, verse 9, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. There are times when our wives offer a perspective that we need to take to heart, men. There are times when our wives offer insight that we need to be humble and listen and consider what it is that they have to say. But there are times that we have to teach the truth and lead in a way that honors God. This is what Job does. He said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Notice he doesn't call her a fool. He's identifying her conduct as foolish. That's appropriate to do sometimes. We we don't think that way. You're speaking as one who is foolish. And then he says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. I want to highlight for us the progression of 
these two statements. Remember in chapter 1, verse 22, we're told, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong, period. In chapter 2, verse 10, we're given a little hint. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Perhaps even at this point, even though his outward experience is strong and his outward response is strong, perhaps at this point Job is starting to question things in his heart. The last three verses of Job 1 introduces us to Job's friends. We're told of (coughs) Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. And the best thing about Job's friends is their silence. For seven days and for seven nights, they sat with Job on the ground and no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his suffering was very great. Verse 11 tells us the purpose of their coming. They wanted to show him sympathy and comfort. And these verses provide a word to us about ministering to those who are suffering. Sometimes, beloved, you don't need to know what to say. Sometimes it's better to say little to nothing. Sometimes being physically present and silent says far more than any words that you could say. That's the disasters of Job. That brings us to the debates, the debates of Job in chapters 3 through 37. And what I want to do in this section is I want to spend the majority of our time looking at what Job says, but we must briefly highlight the heart of what his friends have to say. As this section goes on, Job's debate with his friends intensifies. It starts off as maybe a conversation, as maybe a a dialogue, but it is an intense altercation by the end of their their discussion. What we have is, in chapter 3, Job is going to lament his life out loud. We're going to see that at some point between chapter 2 and chapter 3, Job is upset. He no longer wants to live, and he's going to lament his life. And after that, beginning in chapter 4, there's going to be three cycles of debate with Job and his three friends. And the cycles go like this. Eliphaz speaks, then Job speaks. Then Bildad speaks, then Job speaks. Then Zophar speaks, then Job speaks. Repeat three times. The first cycle, what we have is hints of Job's suspected sin. This is chapters 4 through 14. Eliphaz and Job have their conversation in chapter 4 through chapter 7. Then Bildad and Job have a conversation from chapters 8 through 10. And then Zophar and Job, chapters 11 through 14. At this point, it's just hints. The second cycle intensifies. It's no longer just hints of Job's suspected sin, but now there are insinuations of Job's sin. In chapters 15 through 21, it's Eliphaz and Job, in chapters 15 through 17, Bildad and Job, chapter 18 and 19, Zophar and Job, chapters 20 and 21. And then we have the third cycle. It's from chapters 22 through 27. And it's no longer hints, it's no longer insinuations, 
It's open accusation after open accusation of Job's sin. Eliphaz and Job in chapters 22 through 24, Bildad and Job in chapters 25 through 27. But wait a minute. In the third cycle, there's no Zophar. Zophar doesn't speak and Job doesn't respond to Zophar. Why in the world is that the case? It seems to be a literary device to show that the friends have exhausted their arguments such that Zophar has nothing else to say. It shows us that at this point, the three friends look at Job and they identify him as a knucklehead, if you will. We've gone back and forth and we've shared our wisdom and Job is unrelenting. He, he will not listen. And so Zophar doesn't speak any longer. And really, Job's three friends, they share a common perspective, which is this. Job must have done something wrong to bring about his terrible experiences. But each of them come to that conclusion for their own unique reasons. Eliphaz likes to base his arguments upon his own observation. In other words, Eliphaz has been around long enough to observe that this is simply the way that the world works. If you do good, then you get good. If you do bad, then you get bad. We see that in chapter 4, verse 8. Bildad is what we might call a historical traditionalist. And he bases his arguments upon what those who have gone before him have found out. We see that in chapter 8, verses 8 through 10. And it's Zophar that comes off as the most arrogant of the three friends. And he seemingly bases his arguments upon the dogmatic principles that are black and white. This is the way it is. There's no wiggle room. There's no room for discussion. We see that in chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. But at the end of the day, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar give counsel on the basis of what's known as the retribution principle, which is common throughout the Old Testament. It's pretty much boiled down. You do good, you receive good. You do bad, you receive bad. The problem with the retribution principle is this. It's not so much the principle itself, but the application of the principle. We see in the book of Proverbs that the retribution principle is all over the place. If you live for God and do what he says, more often than not, things are going to go all right for you. If you don't live for God and you don't do what he says, more often than not, things are going to go bad for you. So there's truth to the retribution principle, but that principle can be misapplied. And so we have to be careful when we read about Job and his three friends because the counsel of these three men is not completely and totally without merit. Sometimes it is right, sometimes it's appropriate, and sometimes it's obvious to give such counsel. But this counsel should only be given when evidence and information leads us to such conclusions. Sometimes we don't know it all. I can't even say, say it stronger than that, can I? We never know it all. And so we're always constantly trying to, to glean what's actually gone on here, what's evidence for, it doesn't matter how I feel. We can't just take a principle and say, this applies absolutely 100% of the time, and that's exactly what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are doing. And so we can learn from these men who hold to a good principle but who misapply it. We must be careful not to jump to conclusions or make 
assumptions as Job's three friends did. In Job's interactions with his three friends, he laments his life. He rebuts the claims of his friends. He demands a hearing before the Lord. And he recalls his pure and blessed former life. And at times, Job proclaims profound theological realities. Let's look at a few of these. Look at chapter 3, verse 20. This is Job lamenting his life. He says, why is light given to men who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is the light given to a man whose way is hidden from God, uh, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. In other words, why life for the sufferer? He limits his life elsewhere also in chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. But time won't allow us to look at all of these verses. But he also rebuts his friends. He he tells his friends repeatedly, you guys are wrong. You guys don't have it figured out as you think that you do. For example, in chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, then Job answered and said, uh, let's pick up a little sarcasm here. No doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Why does not... Who does not know such things as these? I am a laughing stock to my friends. I who called to God and he answered me, a just and blameless man, am a laughing stock. You guys aren't the only ones who have wisdom. I understand the things that you're saying. They just don't apply here. I've become a laughing stock, yet I'm blameless and just. Other times he demands a hearing. Listen to chapter 23, verses 3 through 7. Job says, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, the Lord, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No. He would pay attention to me. Then an upright man would argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Of course, if we know the book of Job, we know the opposite is true. But but one theme that we have to pick up in the book of Job is that Job seeks to justify himself. Job seems to want to defend himself before the Lord, thinking that the outcome will be his justification. But beloved, God is both just and the justifier. 100% of the time. We need to be justified by God, and Job will learn this. But also let's highlight some of Job's profound theological realities. This is one of the reasons I love the book of Job, because I see me in the book of Job, a bonehead on one minute, and by the grace of God, adhering and believing such wonderful theological realities that are a gift from God. He does this 
himself. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be right before, be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? Job says conflicting things at times. Job chapter 19. Perhaps the most famous theology, theological statement made by Job. He says in chapter 19, beginning at verse 25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. And lastly, look at chapter 23. Beginning in verse 10. He says, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandments of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my food or more than my portion of food. But he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. For he will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence when I, considered, I am in, when I consider I am in dread of him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. So we get a taste of Job's responses to his friends. And that brings us to the very next chapter, chapter 28. What we have in chapter 28 is a wisdom poem. In chapter 28, verse 28, Job says this, And he said to the man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. And this is exactly how Job was characterized prior to his horrible experience. Sometimes terrible things happen to those who are in a right standing with the Lord. Do you hear that, saints? Sometimes terrible things happen to those who are in a right standing before the Lord. Job's friends don't realize this. And so what happens? They come to a wrong conclusion. Job does realize this, yet he's not able to accept it. Those are the opposite ends of the spectrum, beloved. You don't realize it, and so you come to the wrong conclusions, or you do realize it, but you say, I'm unwilling to receive that. We have to know it and receive it. And at this point, Job and his three friends are all in bad positions. In chapters 29 through 31, we have Job's concluding defense. In Job's final speech, he recounts his former life and he touts his blamelessness. These chapters show that he believes that he ought to be able to march right into heaven to tell God what should and should not be done. Little does he know what has already taken place in heaven between the Lord and Satan. There is more going on 
This is so important. There's more going on than what Job can observe. And such is the case when we experience suffering. There is more going on than we can see. And God intends it for the maturation and formation into Christ's likeness in his people. And this brings us to a new character. Elihu, his appearance and addition. This is from chapters 32 through 37. Everyone else has talked themselves to silence, and here comes Elihu to take on Job, and not just to take on Job, but to take on Job and these three other knuckleheads. Look at chapter 32, verses 1 through 9. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise nor the aged who understand what is right. Elihu really is an interesting character because uh, Job is not going to rebut anything that Elihu has to say. And later when God calls Job th- Job's, three f- uh, bah, bah, Job's three friends to repent, he does not call Elihu to repent. So he very much is a unique character. It's obvious that Elihu is a better counselor with better insights. He heightens the need for man's humility. We can see this in places like chapter 36, verses 22 through 26, chapter 37, verses 23 and 24, that we still find that Elihu holds to the retribution principle, which at times leads to a wrong analysis of Job's situation. Look at chapter 34. Beginning at verse 10, this is Elihu speaking. He says, Therefore hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man he will repay him, and according to his ways he will make it befall him. So we see there the retribution principle is on his mind as he considers Job in this situation. And Elihu is also going to assume Job's pride. We see that in chapter 35, verses 5 through 14. And so Elihu, being this interesting character, has led, various, led to various perspectives about him and how one should view him and his counsel. One view is this, is that some believe Elihu is not addressed later on by Job or God because he doesn't offer much new information. But as we read through the book of Job, certainly Elihu is more balanced and more reliable than Job's three friends, and so I don't think this is a good view. A second view is this. 
people believe that Elihu's perspective is one that the Lord basically agrees with. So they view him as a spokesman or a spokesperson for God, as one who lays, lays the foundations for what God is to say later on in the book. But my question to that view is, if he's a spokesman for God, then why does God still show up and speak? Furthermore, although Elihu is upset with Job's friends because their analysis of Job's situation is wrong, Elihu also seems to miss the point of Job's former righteousness. And the third view is this. Others think that Elihu is just another human counselor. He is a young man with better counsel whom God then overlooks, which forms a highlight for the need of God's counsel in the midst of this conundrum. And I think that this is the right view. I think Elihu has insights that are helpful. But there is one main problem with all five of these men, with Job and with Eliphaz and with Bildad and with Zophar and with Elihu. All five of these men have no idea what has taken place in heaven. The reader knows. We, we see chapters one and chapters two, but they don't know. And it is, as if, it is as if God's word is teaching the reader to be humble by showing us that there is stuff that goes down in the world that he is absolutely, completely sovereign over, but that he has not seen fit to reveal. Not only do I think that any other view other than this third view on Elihu is inaccurate, but I also think it lessens the unique and thunderous words of the next section. This does bring us to the deliverance of Job in chapters 38 through 42. Look with me at chapter 38 and just those first three verses. And just behold that for 37 chapters, there's been a lot of talk going on. Early on, we see the Lord speak a little bit, but from chapter 3 onward, the Lord is silent. Just remember that. And here we have verse 1 of chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I mean, the weight of that. Wow. It just got real, y'all. That, that's what those verses tell us. We have two speeches from the Lord in these chapters. In chapters 38 and 39, we see the sovereign creator. The Lord is the sovereign creator. And then in chapter 40 through 41, we see the Lord is the sovereign controller. He creates all things. He controls all things. That's what's being told. So let's look at this first speech just briefly, the sovereign creator. Again, in chapter 38, look at verses 4 through 7. The Lord speaking says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. This is what I like to call sanctified sarcasm. That when the Lord speaks 
sarcastically, it's good and right and holy. Usually when we speak sarcastically, it's not good and right and holy. Who can answer this? And God goes on verse after verse after verse after verse showing Job that he has no ground to stand on before the sovereign creator and controller. Look at verses 18 through 21 of the same chapter. The Lord says, Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way of the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the path to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Or in chapter 39, verses 19 through 25, the Lord speaks of the horse that he's made and how he's fashioned it to go into battle. He says, do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Verse 20, do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear, and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. God creates all things, and Job has no ground to question God. What we have before the Lord's second speech is, is a break in chapter 40, verses 1 through 7. We see in chapter 40, verse 1, And then the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered and the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will, not, but I will proceed no further. And so we have this moment before the Lord gives this second speech that, that Job is humbled. The Lord says, okay, Job, here, here's my first speech. Answer me now, you fault finder. You finding faults with me? What do you have to say? And Job says, I have, I have nothing to say. I put my hands over my mouth. I, I see, Lord, that I've gone too far, that I've said too much, that I don't understand. But the Lord's not done yet. Verse 6 says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. The Lord's not through making his point. The Lord's not through with his work with Job. Brothers and sisters, the Lord's not through with his work in you either. He's at work and we take him at his word. And sometimes it hurts and sometimes it's hard. And when we don't understand and the Lord shows us a little bit, often he has more to show us. And that's the case with Job here. And so we have a second speech. And we see that the Lord is the sovereign controller. Look at me, look with me at verses 8 through 13. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn 
yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. You, have, you think you have the right perspective on things, Job? Then do this. Later on in chapter 40, the behemoth is spoken of. And then later on in chapter 41, the Leviathan is spoken of. And these are two mysterious creatures and fearful creatures that man cannot control, but God can. That's the point that's being made in this speech. Look at the behemoth and look at the Leviathan. Look how mighty they are. Look how fearful they are. Job, you have no control over them, but I, the Lord, do. And many view these creatures as representative of evil and suggest that God is displaying his sovereign control over all things. And that makes sense if we remember chapters 1 and chapter 2, that God is completely and totally sovereign. And until now, Job seems to be getting absolutely destroyed, does he not? But I call this the deliverance of Job. Because when God is at work in his people, when God brings pain to his people, when God disciplines his people, it's never for their destruction. It's always for their good. And so we see this last chapter. Look at chapter 42. After the second speech, this is what follows. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Timonite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil the Lord had brought upon him. Each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of the first daughter 
Jemima, in the name of the second Keziah, in the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his daughters, saw his sons and his sons for four generations. And Job died an old man full of days. Beloved, ultimately, Job could not justify himself. Job needed the Lord God to justify him. Job has no defense to offer before God, yet it is God that defends Job. Job cannot restore himself. It is God who must restore and did restore Job. But the best thing that happens to Job is not his restored fortunes. It's in verse 17. We see that Job dies and he lived a full life. What makes that the best thing? We have to recall what's said earlier in chapter 19. Job says, and now more fervently and deeply believes this statement. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Yes, Job died. Yes, his flesh was destroyed. Yet shall he live and see God. Job died with a right standing before God and a renewed hope in God. And there's no better way to die other than that. That's an exposition of the book of Job. I want to offer you four brief encouragements toward humility on the basis of this book. Number one is this. Sin did not bring on Job's suffering. Sin did not bring on Job's suffering. Rather, suffering brought on Job's sin. In one sense, Job was the first suffering servant. Yet he was not exemplary in his suffering. And this paves the way for none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the suffering servant, who was exemplary in absolutely everywhere. Jesus, every way. Jesus, the suffering servant, truly righteous. He never sinned. He was treated as sin by taking on the wrath of God in the place of sinners on that cross. So that why? So that all who would call upon him might be clothed in his righteousness. Beloved, Jesus' suffering never brought about sin. Rather, Jesus' suffering overcame sin. Praise be to God. And if God's only begotten Son endured suffering, then we should expect to endure suffering also. But how we endure that suffering is often a matter of perspective. Beloved, in God's economy, suffering is an opportunity. In God's economy, suffering is an opportunity to become more like Christ. So the encouragement is this, don't allow your suffering to lead you to sin. Rather, may the Lord 
enable us to humbly accept suffering when it comes our way. And to say along with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that is by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Encouragement number two. God is greater than your logic. God is greater than your logic. The Bible allows us to generally accept the retribution principle, but it will not allow us to be dogmatic about it. Ask Joseph. Ask Jeremiah. Ask the Apostle Paul. God works in ways that are contrary to, to what we expect often. Contrary to, my, to maybe what even seems right. But he's also said this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thought higher than your thoughts. God is greater than your logic. Encouragement number three. God never gives Job the answers that he initially set out for. God never gave Job the answers he initially set out for. Well, how in the world is that encouraging, Kenny? Saints, sometimes this is the case with us. We have far more written revelation than Job had, and we must accept the reality that God's goal in life is one goal for each and every one of us. His goal is for us to look more like Christ. And so therefore, there are times wherein we don't get the specific details that we might like, but the fact that God works all things for our good, which is to conform us into the image of his beloved son, must be accepted and, dare I say, enjoyed by the Christian. And last but certainly not least, encouragement number four, God's word is a humbling hammer. God's word is a humbling hammer. That's exactly what Jeremiah identifies it at, as Job has, has no rebuttal for God once God speaks to him. He has humility. He, he has the, the clarity of mind by the grace of God to cover his mouth and to say, I've said too much. He has no rebuttal once God speaks. The question is, is that the case for you? Job felt a lot of ways about a lot of things. But when the Lord opened his mouth, Job closed his. The biblical doctrine of God as the sovereign creator and God as the sovereign controller must influence our life on this earth as strangers. When God speaks, may we accept it and be silent when necessary. In conclusion, beloved, by the grace of God, in union with his son, through the power of his spirit, my prayer is that we may suffer and suffer well for the glory of God, knowing that he is true and that he calls us to live for him. May we suffer in a way that's exemplary, 
may we suffer in a way that's an encouragement to others. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this time in the book of Job. I pray that you would use it to encourage your saints, your people. For those in the midst of suffering, I pray that they will be better equipped to endure in a way that honors you. For those of us who anticipate suffering, and we all should, I pray that you would remind us of Job, a suffering servant, but more than that, that you would remind us of Jesus, the suffering service, ser- servant, that we might remember who we are in Christ and that we might remember in all things your desire is for us to look more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. You who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. It's a slow, sometimes discouraging process, Lord. But that's a matter of perspective. Help us, O oh God, to number our days and to be encouraged that you are at work in everything, absolutely everything that we experience. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.